Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify. In store, Shopify POS is everything you need to sell in person. From payments to inventory, Shopify unites your sales into one commerce platform. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash retail23. Shopify.com slash retail23. The New Statesman. You're listening to audio long reads from The New Statesman. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud. In this episode... The Good Social Network. What Twitter can learn from the coffee house. Written and read by Jeremy Cliff. This article was published in the 7th of December 2022 issue of the New Statesman and is available online. All is not well in the land of social media. Many of the digital giants that rose to previously unthinkable peaks of power and wealth over recent decades are struggling. Their basic business model, harvesting data about their users and selling targeted access to them to advertisers, is in trouble. The digital advertising market is stalling, and networks built to serve that market through the algorithmic maximization of user engagement, often exploiting emotions such as rage, fear and envy in the process, have come under greater scrutiny from users and regulators in the so-called tech clash. Facebook has been accused of making products that, quote, stoke division and weaken our democracy, in the words of Francis Haugen, a former employee turned whistleblower. Its chief executive, Mark Zuckerberg's big bet on the metaverse, an immersive form of virtual reality social networking, has seen his company lose 70% of its stock market value in 2022. Meanwhile, Twitter, under the new ownership of Elon Musk, is in crisis. Staff, advertisers and some users have abandoned the platform amid the chaos of Musk's takeover. Quote, he's not building a community at Twitter, wrote the American author Seth Abramson on the 29th of November after he quit the site, but a hellscape in which people of good faith must daily fight off the moral dregs of society. Smaller competitors are gaining ground, notably the decentralized social network Mastodon and the American site Post, which sells itself as, quote, a civil place to debate ideas, as well as various other platforms with robotic-sounding names such as Treble, Plurk, or Amino. Everything about discursive social media is suddenly open to question, what sort of news and discussion should it host and encourage? What should be its attitude to participation, networking, user rights, and free speech? What should be its business model? What societal role should it seek to play? What, ultimately, is it for? A credible preliminary answer to that last question 
is that social media should be the digital form of the public sphere. This idea was first theorized by the German philosopher Jürgen Habermas in his 1962 book, The Structural Transformation of the Public Sphere, which defined Öffentlichkeit, the public sphere, as, quote, society engaged in critical public debate. He argued that the history of the public sphere in the West is deeply rooted in one particular tradition, that of the European coffeehouse. The coffeehouse of old was also a space for news, discussion and encounter. It was in many ways the original social network, and its history points a way forward for a global social media industry now at a crossroads. Coffee houses had existed for centuries in the Muslim Ottoman realms before they spread to Christian Europe in the mid-17th century. They were introduced by merchants and migrants with links between the two worlds. The first was established on St. Mark's Square in Venice in 1647. Five years later, Pasqua Rosé, a Greek, set up London's first coffee house in St. Michael's Alley in the city of London. Armenians played decisive roles in establishing the first cafes in Paris, at the Saint-Germain-Fair in 1671, and Vienna. A spy in the post-siege Habsburg capital set up its first cafe house in 1685. Organised around the consumption of a stimulant, these places contrasted with the raucous intoxication associated with taverns. Coffee houses soon emerged as centres of exchange, information and debate. The coffee house enjoyed three main heydays. The first came in the early imperial Britain of the 17th and 18th centuries, when it dominated the civic life of cities like London until coffee was eclipsed by tea and gin in the mid-18th century. The second heyday came with the magnificent Kaffeehäuser of continental Europe, Paris, Vienna, Berlin, Budapest, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And the third heyday was in the 1950s and 1960s, when new Italian espresso machines, mass consumer culture and the rise of universities combined to revive the institution from Soho to the Sorbonne and San Francisco. Literary appreciations of the coffeehouse span its history. The diarist Samuel Pepys described obtaining great pleasure in this space's, quote, diversity of company and discourse. In his elegiac 1942 memoir, The World of Yesterday, Stefan Zweig wrote nostalgically about the coffeehouse of Habsburg Vienna as, quote, actually a sort of democratic club where every guest can sit for hours with this little offering to talk, write, play cards, receive post, and above all, consume an unlimited number of newspapers and journals. The French-American writer George Steiner, who settled in Cambridge, England, found Europe's cosmopolitan essence amid the marble-topped tables and steaming coffee machines. He wrote in 2004 that Europe is, quote, made up of coffee houses, of cafes. The cafe is a place for assignation and conspiracy, for intellectual debate and gossip for the flaneur and the poet, or metaphysician at his notebook. Coffee culture continues to thrive today in everything from mass cafe chains to artisanal boutiques, but the coffeehouse tradition lives on in its original form only in certain corners. One can still experience something of the atmosphere of the Kaffeehouse of Zweig's memory at Viennese institutions such as Café Landmann or Café Central, or Café Tomaseo in Trieste in Italy or in the New York Café in Budapest. Elsewhere, the tradition of the intellectual, artistic coffeehouse 
lives on in the Grand Café de Gijón in Madrid with its tertulias, literary discussion groups, in the Bohemian Café Havelka in Vienna, or in the beat area of Vesuvio Café in San Francisco. Nor is the politically radical café something of the past. The Théâtre de l'Étoile du Nord in Tunis, in Tunisia, is an important gathering point for the country's post-Arab Spring democracy movement. In Kiev, the Barbaraban, now sadly closed, fulfilled a similar function for the Maidan protests of 2013 and 2014. Anarchist cafes such as Kvox in Athens or Café 44 in Stockholm are homes to alternative culture. To compare the coffeehouse tradition to the social media networks of today may seem far-fetched. But consider the parallels. Across its various manifestations, the coffeehouse typically fused news and debate in one space. People would go there to find out what was going on, discuss and take a view on it. Coffeehouses specialised in certain fields of interest or trade. Lawyers, printers, merchants and insurers all had their favoured locales in 18th century London. Some even developed into private exchanges and clubs. The London Stock Exchange and Lloyd's of London both began as coffeehouses. But most were fundamentally open and democratic, albeit male-centric, allowing in any man who could pay the price of a coffee. These institutions generated their own formats and cultural peculiarities. Pamphlets, newspapers, journals, stock indexes, newsletters and aphorisms. The American and French revolutions had their roots in coffeehouses. The former at the Merchant's Coffee House in New York, where resentments at British rule swirled in the years running up to 1775, and the latter at the Café de Foy in Paris, where the revolutionary lawyer Camille Desmoulins fired up the patrons to march on the Bastille in 1789. Debates raged about the merits and demerits of coffeehouses. Their fans argued that they sharpened wits, stimulated debate, and democratised information. Critics deemed them time-wasting, seditious, boastful, unmanly, mob-minded, and intellectually unserious. The satirist Jonathan Swift warned against mistaking, quote, the echo of a London coffeehouse for the voice of the kingdom. Much of this applies to social media today. Twitter, with its slogan, It's What's Happening, markets itself as a space where news is not just shared, but also discussed and made. It plays host to both dense clusters of specialist interest and a remarkable openness whereby anyone can engage directly with anyone else. It has generated new forms of expression, threads, hashtags, the short viral video clip, so-called moments and memes, the aphorisms of our time. Platforms such as Twitter and Facebook have helped campaigners and revolutionaries spread their messages to others. From the Arab Spring to the Black Lives Matter movement, and the ongoing Iranian protests today. Debates rage over the role of social media networks, just as they did over that of the coffee house. They stand accused of stoking precisely the same social ills. Consider the pamphlet, The Character of Coffee and Coffee Houses, written by an Anabaptist bookseller, John Starkey, in London in 1661. It can be read today as both an account of its time and as an uncannily apt commentary on Twitter and the like, today. Starkey complained of, quote, diverse monstrous opinions and absurdities, and, quote, strange and wild conceits, in a setting where there were, quote, neither moderators nor rules, and where, quote, infinite are the contests, irreconcilable the differences. Even highbrow participants were cheapened by association with this new institution, he wrote, quote, 
the divinest truths become as common as stones. And yet, many coffeehouse regulars of the time responded forcefully to these complaints, just as social media users today are willing to credit their chosen platforms with the democratization of wits, exchange, information, and debate. The article will continue after the break. For the text version of this article and all our long reads, subscribe to The New Statesman from just £1 a week for 12 weeks using our special podcast offer. Just visit newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. If you're enjoying our audio long reads, you might also like the New Statesman's international news podcast, World Review. Twice a week, the international team unpack the most significant stories in world affairs and interview special guests for their unique perspective and expertise. Get better informed with World Review, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify. In store. Shopify POS is everything you need to sell in person. From payments to inventory, Shopify unites your sales into one commerce platform. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash retail 23. Shopify.com slash retail 23. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. What makes a good coffee house? What is the caffeinated equivalent of George Orwell's imagined ideal pub, the moon underwater? Let us call this imagined ideal coffee house, in honour of one of its acolytes, the Café Steiner. Café Steiner is a retreat from the street and its harsh sights and noises, a babble of voices at once lively and not too loud to interrupt one's reading or thinking. Some patrons are chatting, Others are absorbed in their work, like Jakob Mendel, a Viennese character described by Zweig amid his books and periodicals at the Café Gluck, quote, his spectacled eyes fixed upon the printed page, 
rocking his shiny bald pate backwards and forwards and humming to himself as he read. The day's domestic and international newspapers are there in the cafe steiner and free to read, mounted on rods for ease. Its rooms exist in a soft twilight, quote, dusky, comfortable and warm, as the diarist James Boswell put it in 1762, of Child's Coffee House near St Paul's in London. There, as the French historian Hippolyte Taine wrote of the Café Florian in Venice in 1850, quote, one muses with half-closed eyes over the imagery of the day. At your table in the Café Steiner, you are simultaneously alone and in company. Quote, if he tired of what he was writing, he could strike up a conversation. If he tired of the conversation, he could retreat into his thoughts. Writes Kieran Pym in Endless Flight, a new biography of Joseph Rort, the Austrian writer, journalist, and lifelong coffeehouse devotee. Some other patrons may cluster according to their jobs and interests, but the clientele is a broad social mix, defined by more than its professions. As the Austrian journalist Alfred Polgar put it in his 1926 Theory of the Café Central, it, quote, represents something of an organisation of the disorganised. Each halfway indeterminate individual is credited with a personality. At the centre of the main room is a large table, as there used to be in the London coffee houses, at which patrons can simply take the first available seat and talk with whomever occupies the one adjacent. Serendipitous encounters keep the social life of the Café Steiner fluid and open. The Café Steiner is therefore a haven of free and open discourse, true to the ideal of the public sphere, subordinate neither to the power of the state nor that of the market. Perhaps it is operated as a not-for-profit civic institution, or is co-owned by its regulars, or perhaps it makes a profit from the sale of its coffee. In any case, its financial viability depends on its attractiveness to its patrons, not on manipulating or exploiting the discourse it hosts. They can say or write anything they want, up to the point where it fundamentally jeopardises the civility of the establishment or threatens directly to harm other patrons. Café Steiner thus takes its inspiration from the 1670s London coffeehouse proprietor Paul Greenwood, who set out his rules and orders in a poem. He wrote, quote, First, gentry tradesmen all are welcome hither, and may without affront sit down together. But added, He that shall any quarrel here begin, shall give each man a dish to atone the sin. Abuse, profanity, gambling and wages beyond five shillings, which, quote, oft times much trouble breed, were prescribed. As Markman Ellis writes in The Coffee House, A Cultural History, Greenwood's argument was essentially that the very openness and egalitarianism of the coffee house necessitated those basic standards of behaviour. As with so much about the physical coffee house, this vision of its ideal form can be transposed onto its digital counterpart the social media network. The digital Café Steiner, an improved and happier future version of Twitter or Facebook, or a successful competitor or even successor to those sites, would likewise offer its patrons a pleasant atmosphere, neither dull nor cacophonous, but convivial. The online manifestation of the Café Steiner's amenable levels of noise and light might be user control, enabling them to choose how much they see and at what pace. Spaces would exist where users could plunge into news and robust debate, and others where they can lean back and consume longer-form content. 
the site would allow them to be alone and in company. Its algorithms would not constantly prod them to engage more, rile themselves up and keep frenetically clicking. This imagined ideal digital coffee house would likewise allow for clusters of interest and profession, gathered perhaps around certain servers or sub-discussions as around a real coffee house table. But it would also make room for serendipitous encounters with new individuals, ideas and perspectives. It would, in other words, avoid being an echo chamber of pre-existing views. There might be, for example, a function equivalent to the large communal table in the old London coffee house, where a user is paired with another who may have different outlooks. Something like this already exists in the My Country Talks digital initiative, which aims to break down barriers by connecting up individuals with different views for conversations. The digital Café Steiner would also be resolutely open and independent. It might be a not-for-profit institution of the digital commons, the most prominent existing example of which is Wikipedia. Or perhaps it would request a small financial contribution from its users, the digital equivalent of buying a cup of coffee. It would under no circumstances make money from interfering with the discourse it hosts by pushing users towards certain content or exploiting the data they generate. It would remain true to the Habermasian vision of the public sphere as a discursive arena compromised neither by state control nor by the domination of market forces. Free speech would reign, but in the spirit of Greenwood in 17th century London, it would be underwritten with transparent, common sense rules, ensuring that one user's freedom of expression did not undermine that of others. Yet all this, the dedication to a free and suitable space for news and discourse, the emphasis on independence, openness and civility, contains perhaps the biggest lesson the history of the coffeehouse can impart. The coffeehouses fundamentally serve their customers because, whether in 18th century London, 19th century Paris, early 20th century Vienna or elsewhere, theirs was a fiercely competitive market. Typically, the establishment of one coffeehouse was followed by many more nearby, all competing for an extremely mobile clientele. Some advertised the superior quality of their coffee, but this was in fact of secondary importance. The coffeehouse addict Samuel Pepys did not even like the taste of the drink. Most important was the existential competition to offer the most convivial and lively environment for reading and discussion. That, more than any element of technology or social norm, is what most separates the coffeehouse tradition from the social media sites of today. In the former, the customers had the power. In the latter, the hosts had the power. They wield algorithmic control of the discursive ecosystem, hold vast data on their users, and can manipulate behavior. They own the networks they host, and can accumulate such large networks that they can squeeze out putative rivals. Quote, The history of progress is a history of better monopoly businesses replacing incumbents wrote Peter Thiel, the tech billionaire who was the first external investor in Facebook, and a man clearly not familiar with the role of coffeehouses in that history. It does not have to be this way. Proposals abound for a more competitive social media market, redistributing power from the owners to the users. On the radical end of the spectrum is the case for breaking up the big social networks. On the more minimal end is improving regulation to give users more control over their accounts and timelines. 
Between these poles, however, there exists a seam of practical, substantive suggestions. Web3, a decentralized form of the internet based on blockchain technology, offers the prospect of a more pluralistic range of social networks. More could also be done to create a benign regulatory and commercial environment for not-for-profit, cooperative, and citizen-led platforms that focus on news and debate. Elsewhere, in his recent book Exponential, Azim Azhar, a technology writer, suggests a new framework for interoperability, whereby digital firms, on reaching a certain threshold of market share, he suggests 10 to 15%, must allow users to transfer their profiles and data to other networks at the click of a button. This is the right direction for the future of social media. In the coffeehouse of old, customers who did not like the ambience or who felt exploited by the owner could stand up and walk out down the street to an alternative venue. In the digital coffeehouse of tomorrow, users must be able to do the same. The Good Social Network, What Twitter Could Learn from the Coffee House, was written and read by Jeremy Cliff. If you enjoyed this episode, have a listen to Are Substack Academics the New Public Intellectuals? by Chris Bickerton, which is linked in the show notes. This has been audio long reads from the New Statesman. This episode was produced by May Robson. The features editor was Melissa Deans. The commissioning editor was Megan Gibson, and the executive producer was Chris Stone. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to like, subscribe, and rate the show. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify. In store. Shopify POS is everything you need to sell in person. From payments to inventory, Shopify unites your sales into one commerce platform. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash retail 23. Shopify.com slash retail 23.